0: Welcome to another episode of Depression, Bipolar, and Anxiety, Living as a Latter-day Saint. Today's episode is Keep It Stupid Simple. Yes, I know that is not the correct phraseology, but it felt better that way. We really don't need to be using stupid as an adjective for ourselves or anyone else. Before I get too far down the road, I should mention that this isn't an official publication of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and I should note that the best way to spread the word is by word of mouth or by social media, and I would hope you would do so. Now on today's words of information or insight. Keeping life stupid simple. I am not sure why we adults feel as though our life needs to be more complex than it should be. And maybe it isn't really planned, but just happens. Complexity in one's life rarely leads to good outcomes. Now, that is true for those who are not afflicted with mental illness, but it is far truer when you are discussing mental illness and management. There exists no reason or any value in adding complexity into one's life when you suffer. Complexity generally comes with additional stress, both in the sense of time and activity. It also tends to cause anxiousness, and with that comes increases in episodes and emotional cycling. Complexity in one's life does not have to be too many activities or busyness, but is often more found in the type of activities we choose and with those whom we choose as friends and companions in those activities, meaning reducing complexity in our lives might be more about who we are working with rather than what we are actually doing. This doesn't mean that the quantity of our activities doesn't have a real effect or real impact. What it means is that simply reducing the quantity of activities in our lives may have a limited effect or impact upon our emotional health. When we are trying to simplify our lives, we should consider all of our activities and those individuals we allow into our immediate lives. When my wife and I were first married, and even for the first 20 years or so, we both noticed something about one another that I actually feel is important to understand. When we would return to our homes with our parents, each of us would revert back to the relationship that had been developed when we were younger and under parental authority, meaning simply that we had established relationships with our parents over 20 years or more, and when we come back into their presence, that relationship would return with all the good and the bad. Whether we admit it or not, the majority of our stressful, abusive, and problematic relationships are with those closest to us, and with whom we often have a long relationship. As much as we would like to think of our close personal relationships as beautiful and wholly functional, many of them are simply far more dysfunctional than functional and come with baggage packed full of history. I have known many individuals whose relationship with their parents is actually part of their emotional difficulties and contributes to their mental illness rather than be a source of strength. I've seen the same thing between siblings, aunts, and uncles, cousins, and a host of family relationships as well as friendships and co-worker and manager relationships. I bet if I asked you to think about your close relationships, more than 50% of them are likely to be dysfunctional in some way. And I would likely say that number may be closer even to 80% because relationships are often formed by interaction through history and by observation of our parents and peers. And because we simply cannot read one another's intentions in mind, we often form dysfunctional coping mechanisms in our relationships. And behaviors based on faulty information and faulty training. We also tend to remember the negative far more easily than the positive. It is far easier to get on someone's bad side than good side and once you're on someone's bad side it may not even be possible to cross back to the good side. I've heard parents talk about that one problem child or children and they seem to remember every embarrassing sad and bad story about their children and they are willing at a moment's notice to bring it to memory. Whether you see it or not, this is really emotional abuse and can contribute in serious ways to someone's negative mental health. The first thing anyone should do when they are simplifying life is to seriously review the relationships in their life, starting with those that are closest and working outward. The easy test of whether a relationship is problematic is to see how you feel when you are asked to visit or be around them for any length of time. If you feel anxious or nervous and have to prepare yourself for the visit, then you should consider why and what is causing that issue. If you feel completely comfortable around the person, then that person is probably one you want to keep in your life. Sometimes you may not be able to pin down the why, but you know how being close to this person makes you feel. Your body is very good at determining problematic relationships and where the issues are occurring if you, are, if you listen closely to it. I'm almost certain that it won't take you very long to isolate those individuals who are contributing to your negative mental health. In addition to family and friends, you should widen that circle to co-workers and others with whom you must communicate on a daily basis. Any person that causes serious anx- anxiety, nervousness, or uncomfortable feelings is someone with whom you should consider some countermeasures for your emotional health. There is no need to keep someone in your life that belittles you, cuts down your self-esteem, calls you hurtful names, does not listen to your concerns or needs, bullies you, or simply causes you to feel anxious or bad after a conversation. Now, this may happen once in a while with everybody, because we're not very good at communication, But those are not the instances to which I am referring. You know those people who make you feel anxious and nervous. Of course, one of the best things you can do with someone who causes you serious anxiety is really to remove them from your life. But in my experience, that's not always possible, and for the most part, it is rare that you can entirely remove someone from your life, especially someone in the family relationship category. This may even be fairly difficult in the co-worker space, but there are ways to minimize the negative interactions, and you should use every method possible to provide for your mental health, especially when you already deal with mental illness. Now, before I get into this methodology and how we can best approach minimizing our interactions, we need to discuss a gospel topic that tends to get in the way of all this. The scriptures are full of doctrine explaining the need to love and forgive those around us. That 70 times 7 number looms large when you are considering minimizing interaction with other people. Now, I personally don't believe that it was ever the Lord's intent that we place ourselves in abusive situations so that we can then turn around and forgive the abuser. Yes, we should forgive, but depending upon the negativity of the relationship, that forgiveness may take a serious amount of time. But there is no requirement to continue to place ourselves in bad situations where we are consistently being drugged through the mud and muck of a negative relationship. Nowhere in the scriptures does the Savior state that the sheep need to seek out the wolf and then forgive the wolf when he injures the sheep. We should be protective of our emotional and physical health. And if we expect that someone will continue to injure us, then we need to remove ourselves ourselves from the problem, otherwise we actually become part of that problem. Removing ourselves from the problematic relationship is never going to be easy, but there are ways to reduce interactions and even stop the behavior. The first method is simply to reduce or minimize interaction with the person. While we may not be able to fully extricate ourselves from a problematic relationship, we can reduce the instances where we encounter the problem face-to-face. If the problem is a parent or other authority figure or someone close to us, there are ways to address the problem. If one is older and living outside the home, simply limiting the number of visits and limiting the time of the visits is really the first method. Now, This also may mean not answering the phone, but sending texts and other such methods where face-to-face or voice-to-voice interaction is kept to a minimum. Yes, this will often cause an increase in the negative behavior initially understand that the parent or authority figure or that individual is losing power and control in the relationship. That feeling, that loss of feeling, will often cause them to lash out to see if they can return the relationship back to their control. Those interactions will gradually gradually diminish, but the first few may be difficult. At first, there may be anger and abusive behavior from the person, but the individual with power may not stop there often they will turn from the stick method to the carrot method and offer incentives to continue the relationship. Be cautious when this happens. It is rare that the person intends for the relationship to change, rather it is an attempt to draw you back into the existing relationship. Now as you decrease the contact in the relationship, and if you have the ability to do so, you may also begin to help the individual see why you are minimizing contact. That is entirely up to you and your ability. There is no requirement to do so, especially if this increases the frequency or intensity of your episodes. When you help them, it's important not to approach it from an attacking point of view or in a demeaning way, but it is important to be clear. You need to state the behavior and state what it causes you to feel. However, you should separate the behavior from the person, meaning the person is not bad, but the behavior is. For instance, I don't like to come over because when I do, your stories embarrass me and make me feel bad. Or when you call me an idiot and stupid, it makes me feel terrible. Something of that nature. Rather than, you are an abuser because you can't say anything nice. The key is to identify the behavior and then how it makes you feel. Now don't necessarily expect that the person will change their behavior. They are still likely to lash back at you and pick out something you do they don't like. Defensive behavior rarely leads to change, and you can normally tell whether they are sincere about changing their behavior if they don't become defensive. However, again, if you are not comfortable with doing this type of thing, there is no requirement. Limiting contact to text and email And avoiding one-on-one situations will actually be important to your mental health. Over time the person who has lost their control in the relationship will actually drift to another relationship where they can feel that control again unfortunately. So often when we love people we feel as though if we try hard enough we can change them. The truth is that is really a fable. Yes, love and good example can change a person but only if they are willing to change. True change must always come from the inside out and not the outside in. I admire and have admired many individuals who have remained in a difficult situation, loving and serving, and hoping for that change. But there is no reason to remain in that situation, especially if you are predispositioned towards mental health challenges. You can continue to love them from a distance and help them to see that if they truly desire a relationship, then a change must occur. Love does not have to endure abuse. One relationship that is objectively different is that of a spouse. Spousal abuse is far more common than one might think, and it really should not exist or even be tolerated. However, within the church, divorce is still a stigmatic word that can cause an individual to remain in an abusive situation far longer than necessary. No, I do not believe that divorce should be the first option, or even the second option. Certainly one should do all in their power to address the problem before divorce becomes the solution, and that may include counseling and certainly other resources. But again, a relationship is a two-way street, and both individuals will need to work together to solve issues of abuse. And when one is not willing, unfortunately divorce can be the only solution. However, mental illness tends to cause, in these cases, a dependent relationship where the one being abused stays in the relationship because of emotional needs. In addition, the abuser often knows of the dependency and uses it to maintain the status quo and the abusive power structure. The answers to this problem are difficult from every perspective. Often before the, the afflicted person can move forward, they will need another relationship where they can depend upon sufficient support, not only emotionally, but to provide a buffer against the abuser. They need even more than emotional support from another person, but also in the sense of therapeutic help and medical attention. Abusive relationships where mental illness is part of the equation are some of the most difficult relationships from which to exit from the perspective of the abused and those who are mentally ill. The emotional needs of the abused, who is someone who might be mentally ill, even in a dysfunctional relationship, are actually met in part. And giving up even that small part of emotional stability can be an enormous task. So much so that it can almost be impossible without help from another person. The answer to this situation is another person who cares deeply and has the ability to provide for the emotional and financial support to allow for the abused to remove themselves from the situation. Even then, mental illness causes deep loss and pain even for a dysfunctional relationship, and the first few weeks can be very difficult. The one saving grace that we all possess is the Lord, who can in His own way provide miracles to help those in such difficult situations. Certainly, friends and family can provide support, but it is the Lord who heals and provides. Now, I personally have seen miracles with friends who have been in terrible situations where the Lord has extended His mercy and provided a pathway out and forward. If you or a friend find themselves in the situation, the Lord is certainly where you should start and then move towards a remedy. Now, Switching to co-workers, if you're having trouble in a job with a coworker or a manager, sometimes you might have the ability to address it through mediation with human resources or other individuals. However, I realize that retaliation is a serious concern and may cause even greater issues. If there is no way to address the situation directly or with others, then certainly you can remain professional but limit exposure to the individual. Ultimately, working with individuals who cause you great distress may not be worth the advantage of working in that location, that company, or with that group of individuals. If possible, change jobs or locations. I have done so when conditions have deteriorated such that I see no resolution. However, that is a concern I would also take to the Lord. I have also had situations where the Lord has changed hearts and minds when things were difficult. Now, my final relationship word is simple. Take it to the Lord and see what he can do. I have seen miracles when I get the Lord involved in my concerns. Opportunities open up. Individuals somehow get moved or change jobs. The Lord can move mountains for you if you ask and listen. As you consider those relationships that cause you distress, bring them to the Lord and ask for guidance. Now the next thing you should really consider in keeping it simple process is your spiritual and church concerns. Now there are many wonderful things we can do in the church, and we can certainly keep ourselves busy doing good. But we each possess a limit as to those things we can do for others. This is especially true when we deal with mental illness. We should keep our service simple and prioritized. While there are many wonderful and good things we can do, our priorities will determine what we will do within our limitations. The lord can help set those priorities but we should also do our part in working with the lord to understand our limitations and what is important in our lives and those we serve there will be times when you will not be able to serve and will need service rendered on your behalf there's nothing wrong with this and the one thing i learned early in my life and i am still learning is that we should allow others to serve us for service to occur We need both those who serve and those who are willing to be served. Your mental illness will provide for many opportunities to be served. Be grateful for the service and allow for it. Sometimes we feel that others will see us as incapable, but in my experience, that is actually pretty rare. We all go through periods of life where we will serve and be served. That was part of the covenant we made before we came here, that we would help each other. In your quest to prioritize your life, there are some things that should run towards the top of the priority list. Our roles as fathers and mothers is certainly near the top. If you are married, our role as husband and wife should be a priority. Our relationship with the Savior should be our highest priority. Our roles as members of the church should be there. Now, our society diminishes all of these roles, especially those of mothers and fathers. But I fully believe that when we get to the other side and approach judgment, Those roles will be the most significant and impactful roles in our lives. And the Lord will ask us to give a detailed accounting of how we treated our families and taught and trained our children. Now We should start with the highest priorities in our life and then work towards those things that are less important. Something that should be remembered is that priorities will at times adjust to the moment in time. Our employment may not be at the top of the list all the time, but prioritizing ourselves out of employment and becoming unemployed, provides that that type of employment that provides for our family stability, is probably not what the Savior would have us do. At times our employment might need to take precedent, and at times our children will take precedence, and at times our spouse will. Priorities should not be a firm list of this always comes first. We must balance the needs of the priorities against that Which is most important at the time. This is one of the main reasons we possess the Spirit of the Lord to help us in these matters. As we consider our list of activities and our mental illness, we should also consider that there will be times when we can do much and times when we will only be able to do the bare minimum to get by. If we attempt to continue with everything we plan, when our bodies and emotions cannot adjust, we will actually cause greater issues with our illness, which in turn will cause greater issues with our responsibilities. The simple answer here is to know your limits and when you need to rest and remove yourself from activity. I personally have found this to be very difficult in the church where activity is paramount and where we feel as though missing a meeting or an activity is akin to sin. It is not sin to miss an activity or a meeting because of mental illness. Although our mental illness might make us feel guilty for doing so. I have so often questioned whether I should go to a meeting feeling terrible about going and staying. I have found that the Lord is very merciful when we struggle with our meeting attendance due to our mental and emotional illnesses. Even if we stay home and maybe we could have gone without issue, the Lord understands. He understands that mental illness also confuses our decision-making process, and we struggle even to make those decisions, even easy ones. With a normal illness, one might be able to, like a cold, one might be able to push through and go to the activity without any serious consequences. That is not true with mental illness. Often as we push harder, the illness pushes back on us with greater force. The Lord perfectly understands when we choose to stay rather than go, especially when we deal with clinical depression and anxiety. Do not think for a moment that the Lord judges you unfit for the kingdom because you missed the Christmas social or had to go home before Relief Society started. The Lord expects that we will do our best, and He understands when our decision-making emotions are in disarray. We should understand that decision-making is not purely a rational process. Without emotional drive, we would not do anything. And so it is not surprising when we have difficulties making decisions during our episodes. Just remember that the Lord understands, and He can help us when we struggle. And most of all, remember that He is very merciful. When we set out to simplify our lives, to better manage our needs and our illness, we should do so in every part of our life. We should include even the simple daily tasks. Complexity and mental illness simply do not get along with one another. And what is even more important is that the gospel at its core is actually very simple and straightforward. We do not have to study every day for an hour, especially if we do not have the emotional capacity to do so. I have personally found that listening to spiritual music is very helpful to my morning, even before I study scriptures. Sometimes I read them, and other times I listen to scriptures. I do what I can to reduce my stress and my anxiety. One of the more powerful ways I have simplified my life is not allowing my past to interrupt my present. Now, I've had to work hard to force my mind to keep the past in the past, The present and the present, and to focus on the future only as I need to plan my day or week. Simplifying my life mentally has been incredibly helpful to me and has allowed me to enjoy more of my life, reduce my stress, and find greater happiness and peace. Now, I personally don't deal with mental illness at the same intensity as I used to when I was younger, when I suffered with bipolar, but the Lord has not entirely removed it from my life, and in many ways I actually am grateful He has not. I have learned more from my weakness than I could have ever learn from anything else in my life. And while I may not always be grateful for those difficult moments when I am in them, I am grateful for the relationship I have developed with the Savior through my several illnesses that He has given to me. If you cannot see it now, I hope that one day you can see and understand the mercy that it is to have a weakness and to come to Christ through that sanctifying process. Simplifying my own life, has been a life-changing process in many ways. And, of course, I'm still in the midst of it, because I don't think it necessarily ever ends. But in many ways, I have found a peace that I have never before experienced. And for that, I am grateful. Now, may the Lord bless you in your suffering, and may you find peace as you do your part. Until next week, do your part so that the Lord can do His.